this is Shaco Art Speak. Hey, welcome to Shaco Art Speak. My name is Ryan Letario, and I'm here with my co-host, Doctor Doctor Gareth Blackwell. Hey, how y'all doing? He's not always excited about me calling him Doctor, but he actually did do a PhD. Yeah, it's so, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I like saying it because I can't say it about myself, and I have very few friends that are doctors, and so. You know, I'm. I want to use it. It makes me feel better about myself. Hey, if, if that's how it works, I, I'm good with it, Ryan. Okay, um, yeah. you're. You got a full license. Okay. I mean, to be honest with you, that's the main reason why we're friends. I mean, I knew that. Okay. I'm just glad that you brought it out in the open. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, I feel I, the honesty is better. Right. I think the podcast is helping uh, honesty come forward. And so, um, yeah, yeah. It so builds bridges, man. Right. It builds bridges. Yep. I hear a folk song emerging out of these this this little exchange here. So put that aside. Um, in all seriousness, we, uh, we have a lot to cover today. And, uh, first we want to thank you for listening or, uh, just those of you that are subscribing Definitely. and spreading the word, just all the great feedback, uh, that we're receiving means a ton. And so thank you so much. And if you would, we just keep asking you to, to continue to plug the podcast and tune in. I think as this grows, it's going to get more interesting and more relevant in, in ways that, uh, I think a lot of us are going to be excited about. So with that, I also want to uh, give a shout out to Johnny Utterbach, fantastic photographer, did a show with us years ago when we were uh, kind of underground a little bit and is a, a fantastic designer and a sound artist. And he did the um, sort of the sound intro, outro and the sound work that you hear for our GoFundMe. Um, yeah. That was all all his work and in part in some small way in collaboration with Chino Amobi, who's also, you know, a fantastic sound artist. So uh, we just want to give a huge shout out to that. Yeah. Huge. Thank you guys. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, before we jump in with our, our guest, uh, Gareth, we got, we got updates. What, what's going on right now? Yeah, dude, we got a lot of stuff going on. It's pretty fantastic. Uh, right now we're kind of in the middle of almost at the end of, uh, getting the studio space wrapped up, which uh -huh. is great. Um, so all the drywall dust and everything should soon be cleared and settled and yeah. good to go. Uh, so that's nice. But also, um, if you haven't checked it out already, we've got a GoFundMe that's running right now to help us get some programs launched and yeah. really activate the space we have. Um, so it's up and running. We'd uh, love to have you check it out. Uh, we got uh, Curtis Newkirk with New Visuals who helped us out with the video, yeah, which was huge and fantastic. So it's yeah. amazing. Um, doing and a great Cur video. Work. Curtis is a, a, a fantastic uh, filmmaker, designer. An incredible painter and actually yeah. also showed with us years ago and we're working on a future solo show with him. Um, so yeah, yeah I saw some something. of his uh, frames for some of the paintings he's doing yeah. and they're going to be immersive. Yeah. 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 It's really, really uh, eagerly waiting to see him get that done and oh, yeah. see what he comes up with. Um, yeah. I had this like weird thought about the, the GoFundMe. I was like, you know, if we had 400 people give $50, we'd reach our goal. Yeah, we'd be we'd be right there, man. Pyramid style. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Like unabashedly. So I don't know, like that sounds silly in my mind, but then I was like, that's actually, you know, realistic. And so um any any bit will help us. But gosh, if you can if you can get ten of your friends, we and we get forty people with ten of their friends, we can knock this out. Is that I'm bad at math. Is that yeah, correct? I think that, that adds up to some math. Okay. Yeah, it's math. It, it's additional it multiplies and yeah. anyhow, shameless plug, but we do we do want to see this space sustained and thrive in addition to our, our other gallery. And so um, we've done this for years without a lot of support with our own money and uh, our own time and, and uh, gen generosity from friends and family and things like that. But um, and, and some, some community support, but uh, so we've tried to do as much as we can 
uh, I think to, to let people see and for us to know as well if we could really make this happen. And so here we are, it's several years in now, and it's growing, it's thriving, and um, hopefully that's an encouraging sign for people to see the value in lending some some financial support and you know word of mouth support and, and so on. Yeah, so. definitely. Because I, I mean, everything about what we do is really about creating a a more like capable and generative community right. of artists and designers. And so I think there's something really fantastic about using crowdfunding, right? And using the actual community to help build a larger community of art yeah. design yeah, yeah, yeah. that's just really. I don't know. I don't want to go too far. It's early in the morning. Have yeah. enough coffee, I guess, but yeah. kind of poetic yeah. even yeah. to like do that. Poesis. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, whatever the that lo- is. Right? The locus of the meaning of the poetry. Yeah. We're going to talk about that today. Oh, this kinda. is going to be great. Yeah. No, but there is, but at poetry is actually really interesting. <laughs> um, uh, narrative story. Uh, I mean, there's so, so many components to the way we communicate yeah. and um, I'm excited uh, to have on a dear, dear friend uh, who did a phenomenal solo exhibition with Shaco Art Space some years ago now. Was it 2017? 16, I think. Gosh, 2016. Uh, Lake Elster uh, with Will Conley uh, was a fantastic show. Uh, I think it set the groundwork for um, subsequent shows. It set a precedence oh, that definitely. really uh, shaped, I think, a lot of just the quality of exhibitions here in, in our gallery. And so, uh, so we do, we have Will Conley with us. He did his, uh, BFA at, uh, VCU, um, in, in photo film and did an MFA at Cranbrook in, um, photo, right? Yep. Yeah. And so Will, Will is actually a colleague at VCU teaching in our foundations and has oftentimes in the past worked also in photo film. And so, uh, so welcome, Will. We're, we're super pumped to have Thank you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate yeah. it. Oh, you're very welcome, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah and so, also, there's something yeah, else about Will it. that I think you know we need to definitely mention is that he has a connection to us within this space as well. Great call. So um, you know, he's one of our first resident artists here in the new studio space. That's right. And that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, super glad to have him. That's the poetry piece. Could oh, it yeah. be more more <laughs> wonderful than that? Right. Yeah, but in all seriousness, yeah. So Will, Will actually is, we're still under construction. If you hear word noises... The, the podcast studio is still not fully soundproofed yet. We're uh, so, uh, but we're halfway there, um, living on a prayer. Um, <laughs> yeah, bad joke. I'll stop. But um, so yeah, so Will is in the studio for, first one, and uh, so first of first of first, and we couldn't be more thrilled to have someone like Will totally in, in this space with us. And so um, so how's it going, Will? I'm doing well. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. yeah. So what have you what have you what have you been up to? Just in general, what are, what are some things that, that have been happening with you? What do you what, what's what's life look like as an artist right now? Where are you at? Just in general, uh, I'm still so still working on this ongoing series, trying to plan a few things ahead for the summer, trying to figure out a few uh, locations where I can photograph outdoors this summer. Um, working on writing too. Right. Usually, it starts with coming up with sketches and drawings, uh, writings, and then figure out where I can photograph them. So I'm trying to play, uh, plan out ahead a few months, I guess. Yeah. And you have, what, what's coming up? You have a, a residency coming up. Is that correct? Yeah. A residency in Eastern Pennsylvania wow. called Lakowick. Okay. Um, so that'll be, I guess the second half of June. Uh-huh. So just still like planning that out and thinking about what sort, what type of scenes I can shoot there. Um, it's a lakes region, near the Poconos mountain. So, wow. Yeah. So I'm excited about it. a good friend of mine. A few, I guess last summer did that residency and went there and said like, this looks like 
your sort of terrain. Right. So right. I'm excited to do that. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And I mean, we'll, we'll kind of we're going to work backwards. But I think some of what you just shared um, is just the latest of what's been happening for you the last several years as far as residencies and travel. So um, I think that's like uh, a really fascinating component to the work. Um, so I want to go back a little bit uh, and just say, you know, uh, we met working together in 2013, I think, mm -hmm. in Summer Intensive, which is a summer program for VCU. And we had some great conversations and we'd nerd out on Star Wars and other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but in the mix of that, um, you know, I'd seen your work online. And then just from talking to you, my, my interest was uh, uh, peaked to see to do a studio visit. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so for me, um, going into the studio, you know, one, what, what, what's the name of that building? There was that, that was not uh, there now, but Fulton Hill, uh, it was an old schoolhouse. Yeah, an old schoolhouse. Studio yeah. for a few years with uh, Nicole Killian. Yeah. And what, and uh, how old was that building? It was like 18? It was from, I think, actually just 1905, okay. early 1900s, okay. yeah. maybe, maybe 19 teens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But about 100 years old now. Yeah, so here's this old classroom, and uh, there's these huge photographs, but there's all this other work going on that sort of, uh, that lives within the photographs. So there's like sculptures and paintings and uh, this like chalkboard with this intense timeline and all this information. And so, you know, this like weird immersive environment that that felt like you were entering into Will's headspace. And then he opens up his sketchbook and, you know, I've met artists in the past that generate narratives or characters or they flirt with these things at a, at a certain level. And so I was kind of accustomed to that where where uh, ideas aren't all the way fleshed out. And there's just enough there to give you the, the sense of a story or a character or or what have you. Um, and, you know, now, mind you, this is in a fine art context or a contemporary art context. So not not like in a literary context or illustrative context or cinematic. But um, Will starts opening up his sketchbook and talking to me. And I, I was floored the depth in his understanding of the world he's created. Uh, just speaking is one thing, but then you see how committed he is in the in the sketchbook itself, in in the the world building, if you will. And um, there's no way you get to that kind of place overnight. And the the intelligence and the intensity, the kind of quiet intensity that I saw in that was was mind boggling to me. You know, it, it just totally uh, I became like a fan. It's not cool to say that sometimes, you know. But yeah, I became like a fan. You know, I was Thank like you. an advocate. I was like. Oh my gosh, like this work has to be seen. The story has to be told. And you definitely need people to support the work you're doing. And so that that kind of kicked off our our relationship, I think, our friendship, and um that led to the exhibition and the partnership we have now. And um so yeah, so I I I I like to oftentimes take us back to give a picture of how you even got to that place. You know, that was in 2013 and you've been mm -hmm. working ever since. So, or, or maybe it was 2014 or 15. Maybe it was a little bit later. I think it was, maybe we had a studio visit in 15 or so. Maybe it was 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm getting old, so. Um, but yeah, so I, I'd like to hear a little bit of like, how in the world did you get to the place where I was looking at that work to that extent, the depth and the breadth, the, the volume of pieces, the con continuity of the pieces? Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, yeah, it's still it's still sort of branching out, and the mm -hmm. storylines are interconnected. Um, but it started, I guess. I studied photography in undergrad, and I was always really intrigued by or interested in 
the type of work that suggests a story um, or at least kind of gives you some ingredients of a story and then lets you invest your time in it and figure it out. And so I was, and at the same time that I was making these images, I was interested in short stories too. And I was kind of working on those and writing down ideas in a journal as a side project, just thinking mm. about them, honestly, thinking about them in a separate sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until a little bit later on, as I was sort of applying around looking at grad schools, I got some um, really good advice from a former professor about um, kind of blending these two practices together, the mm. short story writing um, and the imagery too. And instead of doing something of like a general scenario that I was originally doing in my work and that I saw in a lot of other narrative artists, um, spending a lot more time um, before picking up the camera and writing the stories and getting a sense of like the visuals of the character, their environment, um, what they think about, how they act. Right. Um, take Making all these notes and, you know, none of it, well, only a little bit of it would end up showing up in the photographic scenes. Yeah. yeah but yeah, it was yeah. important for me to know who these characters were so that right. I could at least pass it off to the viewer at a certain uh, point. Yeah, 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 And um, having gotten to know you a little bit, I, I think it's, I mean, I'd like to go back even further, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I find it fascinating kind of your family lineage and some of the, the kind of, I mean, okay. we, we, we've hit at this a couple in a couple episodes and it's, it's just more because I just think like, um, sometimes we have this picture of an artist in their studio and, and that's a place where the work is happening. But I oftentimes think the work starts, you know, just mm-hmm. much further back in a more immersive way almost intuitively un- unbeknownst to you almost possibly, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I think about what you've shared with us about your family. Would you, would you share a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. We yeah. can, we can go way back. Yeah. Just for, just for a little bit. I yeah. just think it's worth, I just think it's really fascinating. Um, just kind of the, the, some of the stuff you had to do uh, based on your parents' vocation and what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, my, well, so I was brought up really introduced to a lot of, um, a lot of different mediums, a lot of ways of making work. Um, so both my parents had studied theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was, was interested in writing and directing for the stage. And my mom was actually interested in puppetry and children's theater. So I, as a little kid, I assisted my mom. Um, she would do puppetry shows, shadow puppets, and then more like foam latex puppets, like Muppet style. Mm-hmm. Um, this would have been, this would have been like mid eighties or. Sort of towards the late 1980s. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, in where I where I grew up was northern New York on Lake mm-hmm. Champlain, so near the Canadian border. Mm. Um, and so I, I guess I got a got introduced by that sort of sense of magic in making things by hand, right? And finding these kind of strategies so that everything kind of comes together for an audience. Um, and at the same time, my mom was bringing me to. Uh, there was a bread and puppet theater in Vermont they started by doing protests like Vietnam war protests. Wow. So a lot of really wonderful, like handmade, um, artwork, paper mache and cardboard. Yeah. Um, and a lot of like use of dynamic sort of stage lighting as well. And they put on these productions on the water, on the lake that were pretty vivid to me. Um, so I helped my mom with that. And then I also volunteered. She was a librarian too. She mm-hmm. worked in schools. Um, and worked in the public library. So 
Yeah, so I just kind of tagged along with a lot of that and drew a whole lot as a kid. Right. Um, and then my dad read a whole lot to me, too, as a kid. Uh, particularly, I remember, we read a lot of Roald Dahl and mm-hmm. Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. So that had a, like an early influence as well. That's kind of exciting because we're just down the street from the Poe Muse- po mm-hmm. Museum. So yeah. that's kind of a fun thought. But um, yeah, and so your dad was in theater? Is that, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I... I I guess I, I'm interested in that because I think about, so I was talking with an artist yesterday who, who uh, is coming from Canada, actually, that uh, mm-hmm. may be uh, working with us. And, um, you know, we were talking about the way he, he said something to the effect of when he's making the work, his sculptures, there, you know, there's a collaborative collaboration with the material in his mm-hmm. mind a little bit. And it's direct. He's hyper present to the moment. And he's, um, you know, he was saying that I'm forming the material, but the material's forming me. And I was like, you know, I think that that to a, to an extent is is really the case, right? Uh, but I was like, what's beautiful about that, or, or to me, what's engaging about that is there's that mutuality to the the extent that there can be there, and then you pass you, that passes out of your hands. Mm-hmm. So it's complete in in terms of the dynamic exchange between the maker and the the thing. But then it goes into other spaces. And it has because of it's been because of the way in which it's been specified and put together, it starts to render specific shaping influence on those that are around. Mm-hmm. And um, there's degrees to that. You know, there's a degrees of impact. So the more willing, possibly the more exchange, the more mutual interaction or whatever, uh, the more impact. And um, and so there really is shaping influence in the mm-hmm. way like the person who doesn't think art has shaping value. It's just completely oblivious to how much it has shaped. And yeah. so um, I guess that's what I love about like a story like yours is that uh, I can hear all of these themes and this influence that is generationally being pushed forward in a way where you're, you've like consolidated or um, processed these things through your own desires and your own creative, mm-hmm. you know, uh, imagination and understanding and you're bringing something hyper specific forward in a way that's like, you know, really incredible, really unique. And, and then other people now are having that interaction with your mm-hmm. work, you know? Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I just find that, I find that fascinating. Um, are you, how, how, how aware of that kind of background do you think you were when you started to go to school and, and get serious about fine art or, yeah. Yeah, I, I, it had always been with me. I think that I've been thinking about it more the last couple of years or so. Uh-huh. Um, I, th- I think it influenced me in the sense, or in the sense that we had, you know, kind of a, we had to be inventive mm-hmm. as kids. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't know it mm-hmm. at the time, right. but so we had to make a lot of things and kind of stretch what we did have, and yeah. so that definitely came into my practice. And I think some of those lessons I got from my parents, especially like early on, early childhood when we were poor. Um, like I, you know, we had to kind of fabricate and make a lot of stuff yeah. and then, you know, getting into undergrad and grad school and having to make some of work, some of my work and especially outside of school too, and not having a lot of materials and mm-hmm. then kind of having to think on the think on your feet in a way and then just kind of use what's around you and be inspired by some of the things that are around you. Right. I feel like that, that definitely dates back to, yeah. Like early childhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so then you, so what's interesting to me in that is you talked about, you know, and I think will this will help kind of push us into your work eventually, is like um, you talk about sort of the handmade 
aspect mm. and and how, how did you get into photography there's more to it than yeah. I know but how did you so how did so how did photography become the thing well that's a good question because I, I mean I you know as a kid you usually you start by picking up pencils and drawing yeah, but yeah, yeah. I uh, I had sort of an obscure relative who passed away and left my dad a little bit of money and he bought a camcorder with it with that money that I think my mom was upset about at first because he went out and like splurged and bought a, a VHS camcorder like back in the nineties when it looked like this you was were... this was nineteen ninety yeah it was like yeah, a proton yeah. pack it was shoulder yeah, mounted right. and <laughs> and so he bought that and he was always interested in uh, like thirty five millimeter photography but so he he was always documenting things and always filming and taught me just sort of like some basic in camera editing and kind of rewinding and taping over and wow. some basic sort of like special effects that you can do just kind of like pausing and stop motion. Yeah. Um, and so I, I got really excited about composing these little scenes and little plays just through that viewfinder. Wow. Um, and so I have stacks and stacks of tapes of just me and my brothers kind of making just, it was stupid, but yeah, we were just yeah, playing yeah. around with this camcorder. And that I think got me into kind of seeing things through the lens. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, making things, making like really basic sets for our family camcorder. Wow. But so, so that, that's how it came together, I suppose. But. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, yeah, I actually didn't know that. So I haven't heard that. So that's like, uh, so that makes me think about like the, the frame, the lens mm -hmm. as the audience <laughs> or the structure in the audience almost. I don't know. Yeah. There was a lot of these videos that I was making that were never seen by anybody. So maybe just the frame was the audience. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody wanted to sit for them. Yeah. I, so I, there is, there's the amazing aspect to living in our time and age with YouTube. And we talk about this a lot, yeah. like, you know, but uh, I'm very thankful that I did not grow up with that mm -hmm. uh, because yeah. a lot of my terrible um attempts at singing and like rapping and being an actor would be like out there would be out there now right yeah, yeah you couldn't have them there it wouldn't be hidden you know Ter terrifying the yeah. boy band days right yeah my boy yeah 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 back when, yeah, yeah yeah back when i had a mullet you know i had a mullet with um some lines on my head mm -hmm. yeah that's pretty bad nice gareth did you have a mullet I never had a mullet. Yeah. Um, You're too young. Somehow I missed that. Yeah. I you, mean, I had plenty it. of friends that had mullets. They were straight yeah. up rocking those mullets, man. Yeah. Like when, whatever that period was when those were like an acceptable thing. Yeah. It was the 90s. Early 90s. Yeah. Early, early 90s. 90s. Yeah. Yeah. But same thing. They had mullets and lines on the side of their head. Yeah. I was one of the lines on my side, the side of my head. No mullet though. No mullet. Never yeah. aspirational toward mm -hmm. a mullet. I'll only bring the mullet back if it's a skullet. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can approve that, Ryan. Like bear on top and yeah. then straggly hair down okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> the caretaker like the care was it the uh, the guy who goes around the hallways in hogwarts yes oh yeah oh, yeah, 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 yeah that's a great look i mean that's when yeah. you're just like you're just you're owning it you know mm -hmm. it's like a lion's mane but like it's withered you yeah. know it's died <laughs> <laughs> So we'll see. We've yeah. we got some exciting things planned. I'm always trying to sneak myself into Will's work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I secretly <laughs> so badly want to be a character in his work. And I've tried for years to, to do the Inception thing. So this is what we're doing right now. This is great. Yeah. yeah. This is great. And it's also, I guess, horrifying. It's yeah. the start of it. That's so. the start. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, well, I think that's, I mean, that's actually kind of a decent segue, I think, honestly, because mm -hmm. uh, I'm really interested in how you um, do kind of character development with this like how how did these characters like first come to life and then how did you start to really understand 
kind of the, the creative process in terms of what things were were good to include what stayed away how did were there mm-hmm. were there aspects of some characters that you rolled with for a while but then you're like oh i don't know if that's really that generative or productive yeah. or helpful like what about those characters got you started well i think that's that's a good question it um so it usually starts by, you know, something I'll kind of notice about myself or something in a close friend, a family member that I'll just sort of make a notation of and I'll start writing about and start thinking about um, a certain like nervous tick, um, personality trait perhaps. And then as I'm writing about it, quite often it sort of coalesces together as a character. And most of most of the characters that I work on, they sort of live in my notebook and my sketchbook for a few years before I feel comfortable, you know, putting a name to them and um, coming up with an environment for them. Um, but yeah, so I'll have scenes and even like even right now, there's scenes that I'm characters I'm developing, stories I'm developing that I just feel like aren't ready yet. So I just keep coming back to them. Um, so a, a character that that I was I haven't photographed in a while in Hollis Wolfram and his wife, Sylvia, it started sort of as looking at um, my parents' relationship when they were young and some tendencies that I have um, that I share with my dad. Um, and Hollis is an adjunct art history professor of cave art and sort of insecure and nervous and worrying about money. Um, and he, he kind of loves to swim. He spends most of his time in this lake in Lake Elster Um, And that's something that I sort of share with my dad is our sort of affinity for the water and especially northern bodies of water. Um, But so thinking about, in a way, I guess it's processing part of my own personality and traits, um, things I share with my family. They just kind of come out and develop through characters. And then through this series, it's typically um, different environments that the characters inhabit. Um, They're not standing right in front of the camera um typically i mean there are sometimes like you get a shadow or an um a suggestion of a character passing through but i kind of like to build this character through their absence and through their objects through the things that they have around them through their environments and then allow the viewer hopefully to kind of step in and then interpret some of these elements but yeah so that things sort of steep and develop and brew over a while in my sketchbook and through just notes I'm taking. And a lot of times they're super incoherent. If anyone else sees them, they're just kind of like scrawlings that I make um, that make some sense to me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll kind of form into drawings. And then eventually from that, they'll they'll develop into environments the characters could live in and think about how perhaps I could show some part of the story or some part of their personality through just the placement of their objects and the arrangement of their environment. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know, like, uh, I told you before we started recording that I have this like deep love and affinity for sketchbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's something really fantastic cause I'm very, uh, I guess private with my sketchbooks that mm-hmm. I have. Um, and so, it's almost like a, an interesting peering into somebody's life when you can see their sketchbook, because I think most of us, our sketchbooks are kind of filled with those incoherent scrawlings like yeah. you're talking about. Um, but it, I was kind of getting this picture of like your sketchbook almost as like the incubator in the hatchery at the zoo, you know, <laughs> where like there's all these little eggs there and they're just kind yeah. of being kept under this watchful eye. And at some point at different points they will pop out, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe some of those eggs don't actually hatch. 
Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. they're still there in the space. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic picture of like what it really looks like within a professional practice to like be dutiful to the work mm -hmm. and even the work that empowers the actual work you're producing. Um, that we, I, I know that I have students that have a hard time kind of sitting there and saying, well, I, I feel like everything I do needs to be leading to an end. Yeah. And it's like, well, I think it will, but it's a different nuance than I think you might understand. It's a different, like a different sort of time scale or like time frame too. And that's something that I, I constantly doubt about my own practice is that each, each image comes about really slowly. And I feel like I'm, I've shot some scenes when I when I think I don't have a great understanding or I'm not ready and I just kind of sit on it and I come back to them later on and I re-photograph. Um, and I think like, you know, making sketches and leaving them in your sketchbook, I also like to start early with creating, like fabricating elements, props for the characters and their environments and often leaving them up for a while um, if I can, like take over a space, start slowly building up a character's environment until I feel like it's ready enough to photograph. Um, so there was, there was one character um, who lived within the walls of this glue factory in the story named Gorov, who, um, whose environment I sort of slowly built up over a period of six months. And I had, I had found um, this like old, service hatch in the basement of my old studio building in Fulton in the Fulton schoolhouse. Um, I was just exploring the space and, uh, with, with my friend, uh, Brittany Nelson, who had a studio in there too. And he, she and I were hanging out and I just found this really strange hatch in the wall and then started to think like, okay, this would be great for this early character that I'm starting to think about. And it was overlooked so that I could just kind of add elements over time. Um, and I started to sort of build up this environment and I came back multiple times to photograph it. And then ultimately like after about six months, it felt like it was in a good spot and um, I had enough ingredients, but I guess sort of, I see that similar to my sketchbook and that I can, you know, have something immediate or initial kind of sketch of a character and then keep coming back to it and working on it until to the point where it's ready to show. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's what, so I mean, you know, you're already kind of giving a window into like what kind of was compelling to me. You can't fake, like you can't fake age and time. Like you can, I mean, I guess, you, yeah, you can, right? <laughs> but it's the fact that you're not. And so you're like, yeah, yeah, I have this character I've been working on for two years. Or I, I have staged mm -hmm. stuff in this space for six months in a, like a crude life and so it, and yeah. sort of collaborated with the space naturally and to to create optimal conditions for you know this scene well it's kind of it's there's a tension there too because i like in a lot of my photographs I, I make sort of fabricated props and so there's a call to something being obviously fake but then i think i need to counter that and have an environment that feels somewhat plausible right. something somewhat believable um so that i feel like i have to believe it you know, if I expect anyone else to kind of invest time and believe it too. So then like leaving these things, letting them adjust, coexist, like these objects, I feel like add some sort of weird credibility right. to a scene. Um, and I, some of that to me, I feel like it helps, it helps me get into the mindset of the characters too. If I see a full environment with um, objects that perhaps are foreign to me or things that I wouldn't have in my own space, 
um, and a different sort of altered lighting, I can start to believe in this character as well. Right, right. No, yeah, I, think so, it's, oh, I was going to say, I think that's really awesome um, because it's, um, I think because photography can sometimes, especially just like by passive observers, be seen as like, oh, that's just the stuff I've already seen before, mm -hmm. right? It's just a still image of the life I understand already. I think the aspect of those like nice details that you kind of have to stop and take a look, there's actually something very inviting about them into mm -hmm. your pieces that... Um, then starts to create an entire framework of questions where anybody can enter into a piece and start to have a conversation with it. And that I think is phenomenal because like I said, a lot of times I feel like we distance ourselves mm -hmm. from photography because we just kind of push it off and say, Oh, it's, it's just what we see. It's like, no, there's a larger conversation going on here with mm -hmm. this already. But what you uh, do with these characters is even somebody who may not feel comfortable within a gallery space can look at a photograph and say, okay, why is, why is this a prop? And why is this other thing not? And yeah. why does it look this way? And why does it not? Mm -hmm. um, or even, you know, uh, yeah, so even with that, like, or it's like they don't even, you don't even know what is a prop. And so it starts to raise these questions of what is real or not real. And you cannot answer those questions easily. And I think that acts as a mechanism that um, uh, it acts as, it serves as a mechanism that, garners time with the work mm -hmm. so so the right the engagement with the talk automatically um buys you in you're in if you're asking those so. questions then you're with the work definitely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And i think that's you know something that something that i have noticed and something that i have appreciated is like when i show in different environments and a few years ago ryan you saw it where i had images hanging up in this sort of crowded exhibition space but in the that's right. airport that's right um, that's where we drove 40 minutes past the airport the because direction. we were talking we were oh, almost nice. at virginia beach i have no idea how that happened it, yeah we've had some good good adventures yeah I, I had i had set up these images and it was through um like the vmfa fellowship program mm -hmm. the virginia museum of fine arts here in richmond uh, so they had offered artists who had received fellows a chance to display their work in different places and they had these display cases in mm -hmm. the airport and in in a kind of a strange spot. It was by the baggage claim. <laughs> and I I'll take, you know, what I can get. I was excited sure, by absolutely. that prospect too. And they were kind of beautiful display cases. Yes, they were. I was contending with a Pepsi dispenser right yep. nearby. But <laughs> but um I took that opportunity. I thought it was really interesting because all sorts of different people could see the work. It wasn't, you know, you didn't have to go into a gallery or go into a, the VMFA itself. Right. Um, but I started to get different people seeing the work and I had, so I think it was just eight photographs on the wall. And then um, my statement was written on the wall that gives a little bit of details about characters um, and themes in the work, I guess. But I, I had um, a really good response from some of the like bag handlers at the airport, they were like, we really like this Gorov character. I think he's really interesting. What's uh -huh. going to happen next? And <laughs> it was like accessible. Yeah. yeah. And I think that they understood it or appreciated it and spent more time with it. Right. And I'm glad it wasn't a, too much of a nuisance in their, in their space, but I feel like they liked it or appreciated it more than, you know, somebody who kind of walks by things casually in a gallery. Yeah. I also think that's like, it's, it's a, really fascinating place for your work to be especially because if you're walking through any part of an airport like mm -hmm. all you have is photographic representation of false narratives in giant mm -hmm. form 
So yeah, you've got yeah, ads yeah. for this, oh, yeah, and, this all over the place, and it's yeah. proposing this and saying this. And so even though you're having these, um, you know, these fictionalized characters with props within these photos, mm -hmm. there is something that in that context, I feel like it makes your work like the realest thing in the airport because yes. it's such a weird environment, <laughs> yes, right? That's really yeah, So true. I think it's almost like your work is the the realest thing in that entire place because the environment of an airport is just so fantastically weird and odd that it's this really big, strange, curated spot mm -hmm. to give you like a jump into a place that you may not have been before, but you've got all these advertisements all over the walls and whatnot. And so it's, I think it's a fantastic place for that kind of work to actually show. Yeah, it, I, yeah, because because for me that when I saw that show, um, that's how I knew a show in a space like ours would just put that work uh, into such an um, optimal context because the work was tough enough to hold that space. <laughs> you know, like yeah, it it hopefully. didn't it didn't lose out. I mean it didn't lose out for being in, in the, in the airport. And so yeah. I was kind of floored by that. The scale, I mean, number one, the scale of the, the, the photographs and what's the scale. It's like 30 something by 40 something. 40 so the last few years I've been printing and showing them at 48 inches wide by 35 inches That's right. yeah. and then a little bit bigger, you know, framed, but yep. and then a few images that are, that sort of the, like the, basic size and ratio and then a few that are a little bit like wider than that somewhere right. about 60 inches yeah, yeah yeah so the scale is impressive um you know as you guys were as you were talking there's one thing that kept coming to my mind and that is your in your process i don't think i've thought about this before and listening to you talk it um it's like you're a translator so you're building a textual world and in that world things work a certain way. There's certain like laws to the textual reality. You know, in other words, they're written text in a way. And even if some of it's idiosyncratic scrabble, it's still a textual world. And then you're, you have to translate. So you're like a linguist, you're translating these <laughs> ideas out of a textual world and you're translating them into a photographic world. And so there's, you know, there's discrepancies in the translating mm -hmm. or there's, um, fashioning that has to happen to get it out of one world and into the other mm -hmm. so that then it gets into our world in a translatable or transmissionable sender yeah. receiver kind of way. And so there's a, a certain amount of um, understanding between those worlds. I think that you have to have to do that. And um, so I'm just having this picture of you as like, like a linguist in a way um, <laughs> if that makes sense. I don't know. Like, I know that's my own yeah, words, yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Actually. Yeah. Cause, cause a textual world, you know, how many, how many times does someone say the book was better than the movie? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there is something about the way our imaginations operate in a, uh, in, in with regards to genre, syntax, sentence structure, like, you know, it's, a, it's such a different set of laws, if you will. There's some yeah. things that are just like, some things work so much better on the page. You can give interesting insight, but then when you can get like a visual that so clearly articulates a concept or an idea, right. That's what I'm interested too. Like I, so, like writing about a certain personality trait mm -hmm. of a character, and then think about okay, how do I visualize this? Yeah, yeah through yeah. a moment, through an interaction with objects, um, and then you know sometimes I'll find it successful, and I'll put it back, and you know, know full, I'll know full well that people aren't going to be able to read into it or ascribe the same meaning that I put into it. Mm -hmm. But I'd like, hopefully, it has some sort of effect, something similar. 
yeah, yeah kicks yeah, off yeah. a story. I know you're not going to get all the details. I'd not, ex- right. I'd never like expected people to get all that. Yeah. But there, with this series, I feel like it, photo, the photographs are just part of it. Right. So you do have the props that I've been exhibiting and that you and I have talked about a lot over sure. the last few years. And then some of the, like the, the notes and sketches and writings that I've been scanning and, and thinking about, you know, what's the best presentation for those as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so there are different components to it. And I think that's a really good point, Brian, that yeah, some things work better as a visual, some things work better. Um, I don't know. in in like prose form. Sure. Too, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's uh so another thing that I've never I've honestly not thought about, which is just a little bit strange. I, and I, I, I know Gareth and I've talked about this a lot, authorial intent and just mm-hmm. like the dilemmas that are present within that and audience and openness. So I, I want to get into that in a minute, but just a sort of backwards thought and I don't even know where to go. That's just a thought. Um, so I think about, uh, so weird connection for me, but I'm processing some of your ideas now thinking about your work as it relates to painting more okay. than I have before. So not, not the, uh, um, the painted objects that exist uh, at an angle in the work that mm-hmm. has some kind of reference to uh, a character, but actually the, the work, stru- the way the visual is structured itself because the figure is often absent. And so it's an apoth- apophatic kind of approach. So what that, that gets at is like the idea that uh, through the absence of the being, the being is present. Mm-hmm. And when you look at modern painting, a lot of modernist painters were dealing in like weird ideas. Like they were like wrestling with um, existentialism mm-hmm. and they were coming out of, uh, you know, weird theological trajectories or they were, they were wrestling with is there God or not God or this kind of thing. But the, the main point was a lot of these artists like Rothko, uh, these painters were removing the figure to implicate the figure. Yeah. So it was, it was through the absence that the figure was brought forward and they were trying to do it in such a way that it could become every person, you, hmm. you, you know. And so, so then I started thinking about how your placement and your compositions have an emptiness in in terms of figuration, but it, it brings about the presence of these characters in a, mm-hmm. in a really strange and interesting way. Um, I don't know. Like I said, yeah. that's just kind of like a raw just listening and going, oh yeah, like, oh my gosh, I've not linked the work. Even the scale, even the scale of the work starts to have this kind of larger than life visual proposition that really does the same thing as some of the, you know, like you think about modern painting in the 50s and 60s Mm -hmm. or whatever, 40s. So anyhow, just just a thought. I hadn't really thought about it in terms of like the canon of art history in in regards to painting. Uh Um, You know, you think about it in terms of maybe like, compositions and right referencing some sort of painters that you like through your composition um in terms of storytelling that's definitely been something i've been thinking about is like a character who is this sort of absent hero who is really significant really important to the story but isn't standing right there in the middle of things right um and i mean like in the movie the third man too they talk about that character harry lime and then he only shows up towards the end but he has this kind of greater role because he's built up in your imagination right and you see like and even when he's introduced it's kind of through a shadowy form originally Mm -hmm. um i've always kind of loved that where somebody is teased a character is teased along and still left in your the viewer the audience members imagination for a while Mm -hmm. that's sort of something i'm hoping to do with this is like this, the overarching narrator of this scene, of these stories, of this Lake Elster series, 
is an older character in his 90s and he's trying to kind of remember these different scenes and they get distorted and exaggerated and that allows for some of like the fictionalization in the the way that the images are produced okay. too. But a lot of times the characters aren't right there at that moment. And so I was thinking about, yeah, like, okay, who is this, these people, what's their relationship to the narrator? And they're not going to be right there for this reenactment or restaging of the scene, mm-hmm. but how do we make them feel significant enough, important enough so that the, somebody else could come along and be, be interested, be intrigued. Like, okay, who is this character? Who would wear this kind of, you know, pair of boots, this kind of coat, who would, you know, enjoy eating pickled eggs or something like that. Some right. sort of like particular element of the character. Yeah. 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 So if you would, would you give us, could you, could you give us like, if I said, okay, so what is the story in summary as a way of like <laughs> dumping us into some of the specifics? Cause we've kind of, you know, danced around the periphery of the specifics. Yeah. So what, what is Lake Elster? How, yeah. Where, what is the story? What are we, what are we talking about here? Well, it's, so it's, it's been going on for a while and yeah. how long, just for how long is a while? Um, so the series started sort of in earnest. It's, I started shooting the images for it in 2011. Okay. Um, I started doing the writing the stories for it in 2009 Okay. for it. And at that point that was in between, um, um, school programs I was in and I was actually just thinking about it existing as short stories. Mm. So I was working on stories that with no real intention, honestly, of making them into photographs. Wow. So I was just working on these stories and thinking about this location, um, this Northern Lake, um, Lake Elster, obviously, um, based in some part on my experience with Lake Champlain, when I, where I grew up, um, and sort of fables surrounding this lake and the mythology of it, the, the Native American people, the Abenaki people who, um, you know, call this place home and then the colonization of this lake mm. and then characters that this, the storylines kind of jump in time. But so we get a few sort of prominent characters who have a connection to this location, um, who've moved elsewhere, but still sort of like are, I don't know, focused on this area or sort of drawn to this body of water. Um, but so Alan Welter was a character I was working on who was born on the lake. Um, and then through marriage, he moved off to Michigan, to Detroit and started working in a glue factory. And that was the sort of early character I was, I was sort of writing about and photographing in 2010, 2011. Um, his storyline and his, um, his relationship back to sort of childhood memories on the lake and then kind of jumping to more present day with that character Hollis Wolfram and uh, Sylvia and Hollis eventually sort of um, disappears while he's out sort of swimming in the lake one night. Um, and that, that brought the series into more like contemporary setting The Alan, the Alan Welter storyline was set in 1961. So that was very much like a, like a period strain of the series. Um, and then from there, different characters who have interactions with Alan and Hollis and Sylvia and the narrator, a character named Wade Lagarde, who, um, who's involved with the Lake Historical Society, who's very intrigued by these figures, who he knew, he knew Hollis and Sylvia personally, but had heard stories about Alan, um, through his wife who works at the historical, the historical center on the lake. Um, and then sort of digging into these stories and these 
these kind of separate sort of bizarre lives all connected through this body of water. Mm. Um, and now where the story is presently, what I'm working on is a character uh, named Maeve Devlin who works at the inn on the lake. The It's called the Old Chapel Inn. Um, she's the night manager there. And she's moved, sort of mysterious circumstances, moved to the lake from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, and she is she's getting to know Wade, the narrator, and digging into the early days of the lake, the like discovery by uh, Europeans, the French fur trapper expedition that actually came down from um, came down from Canada in 1647. It was this sort of weird offshoot, um, sort of unsanctioned uh, fur trapping expedition by a man named Henry Babour and discovered the lake. And then there are some really serious ramifications or repercussions because of how violent this discovery was, the interaction between the native people and mm-hmm. the Europeans. Right. So that I'm sort of now going back in and exposing the backstory of the lake through a new character who's very interested in, for for specific reasons that I'm going to kind of, yeah, te- you know, show through the photographs why she's interested in this history right. of the water, uh, history of this region. Wow. And yeah, so there's yeah. just a, like a few characters who sure. are. Who are in the series and who I, when I'm working on this, I, I still sort of am developing, um, at the same time, developing these sort of concurrent storylines and I'll, I'll work on them and then kind of jump between the different characters, the current storyline, this sort of contemporary character going back in and being interested, being involved with the history of the lake. And there's an image that I, I made last summer called Stoma and it's a scene of, that's in the cellar of this inn where Maeve works Um, and in the image there's uh, floorboards that are pulled up a wooden floor and then you see this current going to the lake Mm. Um, and in this scene in this scene it's the character kind of led down to the basement and feels like she's hearing voices that start to identify themselves as people who had um, been the original explorers of the lake Um, so she's she becomes very interested for for her own sort of reasons in uncovering what really did happen, the founding mm. of this lake, and right. that, um, you know, it was said that it was started in 1647 um, by this expedition of French Canadians, but um, but there's a whole lot of history that goes back even farther than that. Right. That was sort of covered up. So it's interesting, like you're you're going, you're creating history, but it's it's intermingling with history. The lines blur, and. I'm hearing these characters and these situations as proxies for a contemporary. You're, you know, you're kind of you're kind of collapsing time because you're you're making the past and the present proximate to each other in a way, um, which uh, make renders things more, I guess, more vivid mm-hmm. uh, to to a to someone who's willing to engage with and consider the work, which brings then facilitates these kinds of the social political, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think, I've never thought of your work as political, but yeah, it's it's in the background somewhere. I mean, when you start mm-hmm. to get into relationships, you get into culture and exchange of ideas and uh, what motivates that. And so, yeah, yeah, it's, work is heading into an interesting place. I don't, I don't think it's like apolitical. I don't. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's it can be political. I just feel like it's political from a different time. Right, right. So I, my work usually never talks about contemporary issues. Yeah. Um, even though like I could be, I am personally invested in what's going on. Totally. Here. Yeah. Um, 
but I, I feel like it can be sort of, at least in the scope of my own work, it would feel sort of disingenuous if I made a piece that was about present day situation. Totally. So it filters through and there's, there's definitely some contemporary concerns, but it's sort of translated through a different language. Right. And I think it's important for me to have some sort of politic in the work, even if it's not explicit, because a lot of the work is dealing with the sense of memory and that could too easily be seen as just like nostalgic. Yeah. And so for me, you know, you are going back and we are talking about memory and um, memories associated with certain objects characters had. But for me, I feel like the the memories don't always have to be positive. And in this series, they're quite often kind of fairly negative stories. Yeah. And and I guess that's just sort of what when I'm writing, you know, where the where the pen goes in a way. But um I think it is hopefully an interesting way to combat that sense of like, oh, you're you're longing for another time, you're longing for another period. Right. right. So in this current storyline, like starting to show the fur trapping expedition and the relationship between this um group of sort of Europeans coming in, landing in Canada and then coming down into the United States. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so kind of digging into the history, but not necessarily showing a, a super positive yeah, sense of history, yeah, yeah. or at least looking at it with something of a more contemporary, um, a kind view. of, a kind of realism, you know, it's a kind of, it's a kind so. of fictional realism, I guess. I mean, I, you know, yeah, when I think about, uh, this is something Gareth and I have kicked around a bit. Uh, when I think about nostalgia, um, you know, in a kind of short and quick way, I think about it as the over, over-realization, over-stretching of a good mm-hmm. of some kind to the exclusion of everything else yeah. that, that may not uh, neatly tie into that particular good. So oftentimes people get sentimental and nostalgic and they exclude the horrible stuff mm-hmm. because in order to encapsulate the good, they've got to deny the rest, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and so, yeah, I think that, that the way that you're talking about it in the way the work actually operates it, it mitigates that it doesn't doesn't allow you to land in a kind of overly sentimentalized or or mm-hmm. even like a, a longing for a past kind of thing to the exclude you know it's like yeah you go back and you're like i don't really want to go back to my childhood yeah, there's some cool like, I, I wish i was more aware of what i had that was good when yeah, i had it yeah but i don't want to go back because there's a ton of stuff that sucked real bad yeah you know? like i don't want to go back to that it was not a perfect state i always had pink eye and yeah. earaches like yeah, yeah. i don't want to i don't want to relive all of that you yeah. know some things were good because we didn't have to like worry so much about paying the utility bills you had your yeah. parents to take care of that. exactly yeah, yeah, yeah so some things were taken care of but you, you don't necessarily want to go back to all the all of the situations, all no. the circumstances of being in your childhood. Yeah, no, 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 no. And or you know, and then yeah, and in that sense, going back, yeah. you know, people are like I suppose I could live in the fifties. I'm like, no, you don't. You no. just don't understand. And like, you've no idea what you're saying. And that's something that I would get like when when I was in grad school and making work in the early 1960s. That storyline in 1961, a common criticism that I sort of tried to combat. Uh, was that sense of nostalgia. And then because of that, I started to think about, okay, what are some gaps? What are some sort of breaks in that? You know, I'm not necessarily, I wasn't telling a rosy tale from 1961. I was telling a story about a guy who has a heart attack in a glue factory. But because I was so attached to these specific like props and trying to find objects from that time period, I think a lot of that, a lot of people came to the work with assumptions and, So then that became an entrance point for me to 
to start making my own objects for the work too and to break some of that period specificity wow. in a way. And yeah. so I needed that kind of rupture. And then the work had always been fiction, so it just made sense to kind of incorporate more like quote unquote fictional objects in the scenes. Yeah. So that's how those came about. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like someone, if you're if you're listening to this, you should definitely go to Will's website. You can see the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and get a feel for it, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I own one of your pieces. I still haven't gotten it framed. Where we gotta, we gotta. It needs to have a special frame. But um, uh, that's one of my favorite pieces. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that one called again, though? <laughs> oh, it's one of your favorites. You know. It. Yeah. It's called. It's called Hollis's goggles. That's right, Hollis's goggles. Yeah. Um, no, so but that. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. Right Will's so offended right now. Um, <laughs> I swear, I'm, I'm losing losing my memory. But that's all right. Um, that's all right. Yeah, we have it while we have it. You know. Uh, <laughs> but um, I lost my train of thought. No, I think you're, you're so. Right. I, I mean, I think yeah. I can pick it up. I think pretty well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, I'm interested about the props cause we've been saying props a lot and I think there's a, there's a specific like cultural definition for what a prop mm-hmm. is. Right. And so we understand it as, uh, something necessarily fake, um, that has like, uh, kind of a lack of reality to the piece mm-hmm. because it stands in as a proxy for something else we understand, or we have maybe a picture of it in our mind, but don't fully realize within a physical tangible thing. Um, but I don't know if that's really the way that the word prop should be understood in your photos. I don't know if that does it justice. And so I, I think I'd kind of like to know, like, what is your process with like developing a prop? Cause you talked about, you know, from your scrawlings in your sketchbook mm-hmm. that maybe only you understand, then you get into some sketches and then you get into prop building. Then you get into photography. Mm-hmm. Like it's an amazing, like immersive process to just hear about but can you talk about those props, how they develop, how they grow, how you make them, what your purpose is behind stylistic sure. choices? Um, so I kind of had to, with the props, it, they were born out of that sort of time period where I was, like I said, I was making work set in the early 60s. And I think a lot of it was being, um, I, I did have a lot of support for it, but I think I, I kept hearing comments about nostalgia too. And and so in a way, I wanted to to not be quite so careful about finding objects that fit into that time period perfectly. Um, and I, at that time, I started thinking about like, these are fiction, these are stories coming from, um, you know, sort of a, a, like an altered reality. And so I was, in, I was encouraged by my professor in grad school too, to, to embrace that sort of fictional side through the visuals. And so I started making these these somewhat specific objects as like flat painted theater props just on mat board, painting them and then including them in these sets or in these environments that I would then light and photograph um, and seeing them as something of like a, a rupture or a break that mm-hmm. like something that kind of to me doesn't doesn't completely fit in like some images or some of the props are more convincing than others. But um, also seeing them as a way of sort of like a wink to the audience to let them know that these are retellings of stories. They're seen through a specific narrator's point of view through that focus Um, and that the images in my mind, there is like a chronological order through which the narrator is telling them and they're going towards more fictional and more like a fictionalized state as the series progresses. So then I started working with more 
fabricated elements. There are a couple images shooting with like rear projection screens and some of the storylines are being conflated. And it, um, so this scene like the remains of the glue factory, Vernon's glue factory, where we have this speaker box and rubble and brick rubble. And a lot of the elements, most of the elements in that scene are fabricated as opposed to some of the other images that are kind of shot out in nature. And there's just that one key sort of specific object that's, you know, a cardboard fabricated mat prop. Um, mat but those are prop. made to, those are made to integrate just enough to convince the eye just enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like some of them, uh, you look at them, you, it's really hard to tell because yeah. of the yeah. way you've, you, you've brought artificial lighting into natural environments. And you've introduced um, so like your your medium, you're controlling light in a way, or you're collaborating with the environment, but you're bringing particular lighting into mm-hmm. the situations. And then you're like very meticulous in the arrange, like the placement of these object images. They have to they have to hold up to a certain degree of scrutiny, and that like the prints are the photographs are printed really large, and it's you know it's not optimal to see them on a cell phone or on a computer yeah. screen i hope that people get a chance yep. to see images in a in a setting right. um, where they are sort of full scale yeah um where you can kind of move in close and investigate them but um but yeah they're meant they're meant to hold up to a degree until you kind of really get in close and look at them and and again there's also that sort of progression between the narrator and his own sort of sense of clarity and then also my hand, my skill as a maker has mm-hmm. developed in right. an interesting way as I've been working for like seven or eight years on this series. Like I started off, I had, a, I had had maybe one or two painting classes in school um, that I just, I had to work 10 times harder than everybody else because I was not a gifted painter. And I still think that I'm not a gifted painter. Yeah. I don't know, you know, what the specific gift here is, but like painting, I have to really labor at it. I have to right. work. And I had a set painting class my senior year of undergrad that I loved, but I had to pretty much sleep in that studio because I was working, had to work harder because I was the one sort of non-major in that class. And I had to figure out how to do all these like faux finishing techniques. And then from there, I had sort of put that aside only to come back to it a few years later um, and had lost a lot of those skills and had to kind of reteach myself and a lot of the props, they have the the look of sort of an amateur theater set, like uh-huh. set dressing or set <laughs> right. design, you know, which is convenient for somebody who's not amateurs, amateurs, <laughs> somebody who's not like a professional painter. Right. But um, well, I don't know. So they have that. They have that kind of aesthetic. I think going back to um, my my parents and seeing some theater sets and theater productions when I was a kid and being yeah. really entranced by like, why is that one object fake when everything else is real? And yeah. that sort of dynamic. Yep. And I think that's like part of the magic that can occur, if you will, between so whatever the lapse of the hand is the untrained hand, if you will, mm-hmm. I guess what I think as a painter who has a lot of painting baggage, like I've learned to paint many <laughs> different ways and it's actually hard when you've been trained. So I was trained more in like a, kind of classical realism, overt, direct engagement with observation, with figuration, and then a Bay Area figurative component to that, uh, gestural abstraction and figuration together. And so to undo, <clears throat> to kind of de-skill or undo that or mm-hmm. break the rules, knowing the rules so well, it's it's been hard for me. Like, And so, I mean, I, maybe not everybody has that problem, but so when I look at your work, I'm like, I couldn't do that. And because you you're not a you're not mindful of rules you don't need to be mindful of they don't really apply if you will or 
people's ideas about what painting is don't really interfere with the execution. And so in some ways, I think it, it suits you better to not, you know, and I think they, I think they get past, they get past the pain. I mean, you know, I'm a pretty critical eye when it comes to painting and they, they work for me. You know, I think that was part of also what was compelling about it, you know, um, it hence wanting to show the props. Yeah. You know, which is a brave move. I feel like, um, for you to do that. I, yeah, that's only been within the last like few years too. And that's yeah. something, something that you encouraged me with too. And that I've been showing in, in other exhibitions since like yeah. showing the props and, I guess I call them, started off by calling them props, Gareth, I guess to go to, to your question is, like I saw them as a part of a whole or sort of in service to the photograph and in service to the story. So, and in only only somewhat recently, they've been kind of like breaking out and showing them as a separate thing. Um, but I guess they, they always are sort of like a, a, a smaller part of a larger whole. Mm -hmm. And so they are shown alongside the photographs. Um, you know, not directly next to the one that the prop would appear in, sure. but um, use them as sort of like an extension of the photos and of the narrative in right. a physical space in a, in a gallery setting. Yeah, I think they're fantastic as like, uh, I don't know, like artifacts of the past, right? Um, like if you imagine like an archaeologist digging something up, it doesn't have quite the shine or luster that it did when mm -hmm. it was first made. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, if you go to your parents' house and up in the attic, there's like some old toys that you have fond memories of, but they're just not quite as like fun or cool as you remember. Yeah. Like, I think there's something nice about that, right? That there is a difference between the photographic sense of your work and the prop sense of your work. And I think that disconnect is actually really fantastic as we point toward like memory and story and the way that those things kind of interact together. I think that it actually is like a beautiful, like, seemingly very purposeful discrepancy that I really enjoy about your work. Yeah. I mean, it, it gets tricky cause it's like an, it's an, you know, it's an honesty and like we're, we're not, we're, I think we're moving out of the irony thing. Uh, you know, sort of everything is ironic. It's a mm -hmm. little cynical. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, there's a lot of cynicism and understandably slow. So, but there also is a lot of radical sincerity or deep, deep, like, no, this is tr truthfully what it is. And, um, I think, the honesty of like the interaction in a space between the the prop objects and the the photographic world that in, uh, gives us a view into this really deeply constructed narrative situation um they're not compromised in that way you know mm -hmm. saying this i was saying this you know this is so my own little nerdy take on things but you know i i go back to like watching the wizard of oz it's like a reference point for me and I knew that that was a person walking around in a lion suit, but, and even now it, but the, the direct fact that it, the, the materiality was laid bare, the construction was laid bare and yet it still worked seamlessly in the, mm -hmm. the narrative construct. So something about the way that those facts can live together becomes kind of magical. There's some sort of like, it was like approachable. Yeah, it was approachable or, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like there's differences in how you lose yourself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like Trumpel painting historically, you know, we've got to put a frame around it because we don't want people to not know that this isn't yeah. real, which is hard to believe that that actually happened, that people were like concerned about someone being too convinced that that loaf of bread wasn't <laughs> real, you know, but that's where people were at. So, you know, it's like sorcery, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. what kind of sorcery is this? And it's like just a highly skilled painter. <laughs> um, but, you know, like you go into um, certain 
sort of entertainment structures and the blurring of reality mm-hmm. is the the chief end. And there's a risk in that. Like people can I'm not I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm just saying that there's the reality. People can get lost to the mm-hmm. fictional world. Right. And never come back. Mm-hmm. So there's that kind of potential. But then there's the other, which is um, you're firmly in your world uh, as the viewer, as the audience, but you've been given license to explore this other world without losing yourself, which may not sound very cool, but I like that. I, I like the fact that I can enter into Lake Elster and not and get lost without losing myself, if that makes sense. That I'm still, you know, the Wizard of Oz is like, you know, that's like a set, you know, there's, there's less, there's not a threat to your, to to you existentially, if, if if that makes sense. Well, you need you need that sort of distance so that you stop and think about what you're seeing right. rather than get completely swallowed up in it. That's right. Like that Brechtian theater that you think about that it moves you to think rather than moves you to feel completely. Mm-hmm. So that you're you're aware of the fact that okay, I'm I'm a spectator, I'm looking at this, I'm looking at this piece. And it's also calling to mind how it was created. Yeah. So it should hopefully work on multiple layers where you right. can you can, you know, still be invested in the story. I, like I'm, I'm still very much invested in the story, but I also want you to think about how it's being presented and who is recalling this scene. Right. And so I've always have like the, that the prop in there is sort of like a little, a little reminder that these are scenes that are being filtered in a way. Yeah. And yeah, being yeah, presented. Yeah. yeah. How does that? How does that? Um, because we were uh, talking earlier, um, just about um. The sort of the tension that could be there, the trappings, mm-hmm. like the so narrative art and entertainment and the functions of those zones, if you will, yeah. and where there might be overlap and how someone might land you in one ditch or the other. Um, mm-hmm. And so listening to you talk right there kind of kind of brings that into focus for me, because because when you talk about entertainment and mm-hmm. to be amused is to really not think about it in many yeah. ways. It's to, it's to be amused, to negate the, the deep thinking about it. And so I guess... How, how, how have you processed those those kind of zones out for yourself? Or do you, do you think about that? I, I mean, I do. I always, I want, I mean, part of storytelling is entertainment. I think you can't, right. you can't get away from that. And that's like a lot of the appeal. But you have to, at the same time, you do the work and you want your, you want the viewer, the audience member to have them some sort of like enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also want them to kind of stop and think about it. And so personally by i think with a lot of these scenes of not having the character explicitly in front of the camera or sitting at their desk in these environments in these scenes that i'm staging that to me is an invitation for the audience to kind of enter in and think about or try and hopefully activate the audience so that they have to do some of the work too and that it's not all just like something they consume and move on right so there's always been that <clears throat> to me, I feel like that tension between art and entertainment and which way do you go? And I, I, I think that it, they should still be somewhat entertaining or enjoyable because they are stories, but I want people to also invest some time and think about it. And, you know, I meet them at a certain point and then they have to pick it up. Yeah. I think it was like, I think Dave Hickey said that art was basically, you should just, I mean, you know, he's, he's provocative thinker back in the day, but mm-hmm. You know, I think I, one one time I heard him talk and he was like, yeah, art should be for your friends and it should be entertaining. And that's it. And he's like, mm. you got to make it for your friends and it needs to be entertaining. And he's like, an artist should not have a problem with it being pure entertainment. And mm. uh, and I think he was trying to take pressure off 
Yeah. You know, as a, as a critical thinker, I was thinking he was trying to take pressure off and I think he, you know, he was being provocative and, and, you know, kind of brass and, um, you know, this was like in the nineties, I think when he said this late nineties, mm-hmm. but, uh, which is interesting now, like, I wonder what he would say now, but, um, I, I don't think it can be squarely entertaining to the point. Yeah. Like, I think I like one thing you said, which was, I don't just want them to come in and consume it and leave, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so then you're talking about work and getting, getting there to be mutual work. Um, and, uh, that gets to one of the things I was interested in talking with you about Gareth and I also, we've talked about this as authorial intent, like which it could be like a dirty word, but just the idea that you have imbued or encoded this world with particular ideas because they're very specific. It's not um, like the way things are open is only in relationship to how specific I mean, it's Lake Elster, you know, you have time periods like I, like you have like a, a, a piece that I love. It's, it's a timeline piece. You know, mm-hmm. that's this huge long piece that's like on a chalkboard and it like the history is like hundreds of years, you know, that's very specific. Um, and so the the pressure, I guess, I don't know, how, how do you, so I'm thinking about contemporary art context. I'm thinking about a premium on, uh, it's sort of an epistemic shift from the artist to the observer. When you think about the fluxus movement and and happenings and and uh, the audience completing the work mm-hmm. and really making a suspended moment where uh, there's a potent exchange or a a potent occurrence that's transformative yeah. and and so so then you get that kind of thinking institutionalized and so you go to grad school and everybody it's sort of a normative assumption that it's the work's got to be open to everybody yeah that's a massive proposition that's a massive amount of pressure because who is everybody you know. And so I guess I wonder, I, I was really, I think part of the initial intrigue with your work was I felt like, not that you're disregarding that, but you're bravely um, coming at that in such a way that is not rendering your work eviscerated from specificity, mm-hmm. you know, um, which is photography. It's like all these things that to me have these potential difficulties and you're just like, cutting right through those with a clear voice. And so, yeah, how does that, how does that strike you as an, as an observation? Like, do you think about that a lot? Um, no, I, I do. I, I am constantly thinking about that. Like, okay, who's going to care about this uh-huh. big deal? You know, who, who's going to care about this specific character in this time period? And um, I think the key point is like making the images interesting enough in a way so that they're engaging. And so people would be interested to sort of pick up, um, take it upon themselves to kind of dig into it. And, you know, with the timeline piece, it's ridiculous. Like it goes back 350 some yeah. years. And, and so it's, it's there, like it has to make sense for me. There has to be an internal logic and I'm not expecting everybody to read through this, but it's there if they want to. And so mm-hmm. it has to have like the work has to have some sort of appeal on like face value. And I'm, you know, if somebody sees one of my pieces, I'm not expecting them to have been following it and seeing it from like day one. So you, there has to be still like an entrance point in each of the images. And then if they want to, which would be amazing, they could, you know, start up a conversation and go see some of the other pieces, um, you know, find them online, look into, I have some of my sketches and notes put up on my website as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like the, I have to know what's in these kind of gaps and shadows in the story, whether or not I tell it, mm-hmm. because I think it, it does have to hold up and hopefully it, it is holding up. Right. Um, but I want the work to be open 
so that other audiences and other people can access it, but it's up to them if they, if they're interested in it, there are some resources available through the other images. Like you, one of the, one of the reasons for making this series, what I really wanted to do was I loved narrative photography, but I felt like a lot of the work that I was seeing had this sort of very broad, very general, um, scenario like Gregory Crutzen work and Jeff Wall. I absolutely yep. love Jeff Wall. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times they were these kind of like one-offs. And so I wanted right. a narrative series where you could sort of like follow a character through multiple scenes right. in different stages. Um, and so that if you do the work, hopefully, um, like there are traces and objects that are associated with certain characters that you can see through multiple scenes. Right, right. So like there are some like breadcrumbs, I guess, in yeah. a way. How do you, how do you, so I, one of the best shows I think I've ever seen, period, was Thomas Dumont. It was a show, it was probably about 2008 in New York. Um, it was like these stuff dealing with like um, these conspiracies. Uh, I think it was in South Africa and like these documents. And I mean, in, so like they, they simultaneously, they were like accurately depicting mm-hmm. these spaces and it's all, you know, it's constructed out of paper. Yeah. But then the scale of the objects, the the convincing nature of the object itself had its own life and vitality, and you're yeah. like ebbing and flowing between these two points. And I think that work sticks out to me. I think in the, in the way that you're talking about, I think your own work also in some respect. Yeah, um, I yeah, absolutely love those works too. Yeah. And that like he's with Thomas Demond, he's he's tapping into like a collective awareness of a certain event or a, like a notorious historical event yeah. so that we are all coming to it with some familiarity right. to these scenes. So you, you, you see one of his images, which, you know, a photograph of a, of a structure that he's right. constructed out of paper in a studio. Um, and you have this sort of lingering sense that you've seen this before because it's been brought to you through the media, through newspapers, through imagery. So you have these kind of like loaded, potent historical sites. Right. Um, and so then I was thinking about that with my own work, like, okay, how do you like, how do you engage the viewer too, but with narratives that they're not necessarily familiar with? Right, right. And so then I started thinking about, okay, well, if if there are a few scenes that are linked together, environments and familiar objects that pass between scenes, like the audience could start to build, build a familiarity. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I, I think that through the props that I'm making to are they have signs of wear and more like specific particular details to them. Whereas Thomas DeMond, like his work is often really like a a broad impression or like a a memory of a scene that you've seen. So it's devoid of a lot of particular like granular details. Mm -hmm. So in mine, I'm like trying to like make them even more specific, even if it's specific to a world that only I really know at that point. So you're comfortable with the uh, a healthy proportion of the idiosyncratic specificity being lost on an audience and not feeling as though that this that you're losing the audience, I guess. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I that's something that I I have thought about and something that I have to become comfortable with too. Is like, yeah, okay, you're it's not maybe going to have a huge broad appeal, but um, but there are details and there are answers there if you invest some time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about this depth, time-wise, of your work. You're on a trajectory that I was—I feel like is unusual. Um, you, you're setting a situation up for yourself where this could be like your life's work. Do you think about that? I absolutely like. I still like I, a couple of weekends ago. I you know met with some of some of the artists I went to grad school with, and we were talking about this. And 
talking about like with photography it seems like there's generally a need to like produce a new series every couple of years mm. and and the way that I guess I sort of think and I, I mean I've tried to work in that way too when I was younger like making these sort of separate discrete series but I was always interested in how one sort of like bled into the other yeah yeah and I think I've just at a certain point resolved like I have to be committed to this like I feel like these stories need time to develop and I I constantly check myself but I have to be confident in that like okay this each scene takes a while to develop and right. it'll be worth it sort of later on yeah yeah so it's frustrating it's really difficult but you, you like I think that for this to be done well I have to kind of be dedicated to it and keep pushing even if nobody's seeing it you know yeah like, or seeing all the little bits and pieces that add up to a final piece. Yeah. You're denying gratification, immediate gratification. You mean you're denying yourself a certain level of like interaction and support around the work to make the work. It's kind of frustrating. Yeah. I, mean, like I keep yeah, thinking yeah. about it too. Like, oh, should I like, and I'll, I'll play around with ideas of side series and things and I'll start working on it. But then like within this framework of the series, I think, you know, there are very specific things, but there there's a lot of liberty to branch off into different storylines and yep. experiment and explore completely different environments. Right. So, like, I was working on this character, Alan, and then that became really claustrophobic and really confining. And then the series started to introduce Gorov, who is... My, Gorov's my favorite. Gorov's your favorite. Yeah. It's heavily suggested that he's Alan's imaginary friend born of the, the glue fumes in the factory. Right. And that character introduced like more expansive outdoor environments and vistas because at a certain point he burns down the glue factory and then flees north. Right. And so it, it, it opened up the series for me. So like, oh, I can have like a landscape or I can have a scene of a river and a mountainside. And so like organically that character led to new opportunities for me to right. the ways that I think about it and the, the type of scenes that I could shoot. Sure. So that's just, just like one example of like how the story branches off and gives me new opportunities to shoot scenes that you may not think would fit visually within this series, but yeah. it becomes a challenge for me too. Like, okay, how do I diversify this? Yeah. Well, I think there's something as well, like your due diligence to uh, something like Lake Elster, it allows you to have something that's very organically generative, which is nice. Cause if, 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 if all art practice exists in a space where you're constantly feeling the need to kind of, uh, break and then move on to something mm -hmm. different then in a sense every new piece kind of starts to decimate the work you've done before mm -hmm. it because you're trying to always make that break yeah and i know that that can be um i don't know it's 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 kind of like sexy when you get out of art school i think because you're like oh i can i can do so many things i can be seen yeah. as so like just active across the spectrum of of art um but then you look at uh, especially within like authors i think of you know, Hemingway with his character, Nick, that he has in his short stories, right? And over decades, he's writing these stories mm -hmm. that every one of them kind of gives you another kind of like uh, deep breath in of knowing and recognizing who this person is. And so every piece of work is building on the earlier work. It's becoming highly generative. The ways that that character becomes able to like play out new scenarios mm -hmm. and new things is fantastic. That can only happen if you're kind of working in something for a longer period of time. Well, yeah, it's like this, char this character is in a glue factory and, and now there's speculation as to how this other character materializes. And it's a, it's like, a, you know, I mean, it's, it's mirroring what you're doing at different scales and levels, you know, like 
um, you're doing that yourself. You're imagining, um, like philosophers will talk about things like is, um, I don't know, Scooby-Doo real in Depending on Scooby Dooby Doo, Scooby Dooby Doo. Depending on what Just you make mean, sure we know the yeah, right that's Scooby-Doo. right, Scooby Doo. So, or a cartoon character, Tony <laughs> the Tiger, whatever. Are they real? And in the one hand, ontologically, as a, there there is an ontological reality to like mm-hmm. Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse is a being. It's been conceived in a particular world, and mm-hmm. so to that extent, yes, there is life to that. Character. That's right. Yeah. So it's a really weird. Um, space to live in because it, it depends on the kind of demands you place on yeah. the ontology of that kind of being exposes what kind of being it is and, and what it can and cannot do and what mm-hmm. it can and cannot be. And it, it, it gets into weird head spaces because then you start to ask questions about what is real and what is not. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, because more people like kids, more kids recognize, well, a certain type of kid recognize bug, bug, bugs, bunny, more more so than like FDR or something totally, like so totally. they become more yeah. vivid and more real. Exactly, they're 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 there in yeah. a kind of way. Yeah, yeah, and it, that gets into issues of age. So being an agency or different things. So yeah. then you get into like, well, when you start to collapse those categories, then you start saying, well, no, there's no agency or who's controlling the agency. And it, I mean, it's a really really weird and fascinating discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, that your work is just completely treading in these categories. Um, and one of the things I, I keep when I'm, I'm listening to you, I'm like, dude, are you cool with the fact that you might be making this is a little more, but you might be making work for an audience that loves your work after you're gone. Is that a, <laughs> <laughs> I do. You, I mean, I hope some, somebody. Yeah. Like up. what? If, but what if that's really what you're doing? Like, what if you have to do this for 40 years? I think that that's kind of it. Yeah. yeah like, you know, I have yeah. to be dedicated to it. And I have to like I'm really interested in it and I'm hoping that at some point yeah that I yeah that it does sort of break through and that more people do see it um but but yeah I, I'm constantly thinking about that like okay yeah it's maybe it's not this immediate audience yeah yeah and I think so I, I would love yeah. I would absolutely love for I have a feeling like one day it's going to be all kept in a dusty garage and someone is going to happen upon kinda, it, like a relative, yeah. a kid, a yeah. grandkid. And I'm like, what the hell is all of this stuff? What was he doing yes. all this time? Yeah, yeah. And then and, it'll be like in Mocha. Well, <laughs> more likely it'll be in a coffee shop no. next to Mocha. But Yeah, the coffee shop next to Mocha. No, but I, but I think about it too, like that sort of story and like that you're dedicating yourself to this practice that, probably nobody is going to see right and that somebody maybe will happen upon it later on and then have to interpret it anew Mm -hmm. i don't know i i i kind of like that like maybe somebody comes across a stash of these yeah um i mean you've put your so i mean i i like the idea that for myself but i don't have (laughs) i don't have the uh i i don't have the the breath in the work in a way that lets it do that you know i don't know it's gonna it's a different different thing for me but you really are in a unique dilemma, like in the sense that I think that's the opportunity. You've really created a world for yourself that you're the person to carry that forward. And so um, I feel like you you just you kind of have to bypass some of some of the things that we in this moment call contemporary. And you're you're a mar- you're a a profoundly marathon you're a marathoning marathoner. You know, like you're really really a marathon runner. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and I, I just mean that as a great thing because I just don't yeah. find that very often. Um, which was again, I feel like there's a stack of highly unusuals when it comes to you. 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's a whole stack of them. You're like, that's highly unusual. That's highly unusual. I wasn't planning it. To yeah, this yeah, yeah. Way. It's just sort of like how it's developed. Yeah, I think I think that's probably something to do with your. I think yeah, I think it's very honest. I don't think you're contriving it. Also, I think it's yeah, like definitely. yeah, sincere engagement, if you will, very intellectually honest uh, uh, working of this work, which is a very unique body. Yeah, and I think yeah. you know it gets back to your point earlier, Ryan. Uh, you're talking about the the sculpture you're talking to. It's talking about like collaboration with the materials, right? It really feels like that, right? Where uh, you have kind of uh, born and shaped this world. But in turn, it's also kind of shaping you in terms of how you turn it back into the new creation for that world. So you're letting it become something that you develop deeply enough that it actually can kind of stand on its own, mm -hmm. um, that you um, are the one to push it forward. But like it is there as yeah. a thing mm -hmm. that now, like, I think the work just gets stronger and stronger the more that world can develop. Continue to push out. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're going to have to have uh, a Lagarde, Wade Lagarde for your work you know like you're going to create you're creating you're creating a space with a character that is trying to piece it together and i i kind of feel like sometimes he's a proxy for your own anxiety which also like a questioning about the work which mm -hmm. also then relates back to like what you shared about your father so there's this line of continuity and then you're creating a character that will that is kind of cluing a future audience into what will be required to encompass the whole of the body of work so I think you've created an incredible amount of scope, mm -hmm. you know. So for me, I, I'm I'm an advocate, you know, in a sincere way. Would want to see this work go forward and brave all the uh, anxious nights where no one you're like <laughs> no one's looking at this, you know, like who's collecting it? Yeah, it, yeah. it's it's tough, like applying and you know, like I said, not having a new series all the time, but still like kind of dedicating my, yep. myself to this one body of work, and that can be difficult too. Where you're like applying and you have to have new entries for different submissions, and I'm you know. I'm, continually making new images but it's some of them are relying on earlier images and it's just right. like the scale is a little bit different sure yeah so the, so the context for the work that's why we wanted to do show, show at Chaco Art Space the space was so big that it gave all the work a chance to be together with room to breathe and, and sort mm -hmm. of move motion being an operative aspect of uh, dealing with the narrative components yeah. you know like really being able to breathe and move around I've started like thinking about with, with different shows and different spaces, like Shaco was great because it was so big that there were like three galleries. So I could have samples of different, like all the storylines, um, with a show that I had, uh, this past, this past fall, it was a smaller space at, at Notre Dame. Right. Um, um, that I was you know, asked to show there. And so I kind of curated it down to just one or two specific storylines. Cause I think it ended up being maybe seven or eight of those large photographic prints. Um, but so it depends on the space too. And I just like think about, sure. okay, maybe I'll just focus for this show. I'll focus on a certain like kind of current in the, in the work, mm -hmm. a certain um, strain of the story. Yeah. But with, with Shaco with a larger space, there was actually room. So you could kind of like a have a good number of prints, but B also allow the viewer enough time to kind of walk and process and think about the work from you know, walking across the room to the next piece and right. jumping around between these different storylines. Right. So I feel like you, it, it can be dense. And so, you know, Shaco art space allowed that kind of like intellectual space too. I think so you'd be like, okay, yeah, I need to kind of think about this for a minute and then pause and clear my head and then move on to the next one. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm almost imagining like we will need to create some kind of fund for the Conley house 
which will ultimately house all the work, you know, in the architecture. <laughs> It'd be a, a kind of a museum. Putting that, I'm putting that out in the world so that it happens. The roof yeah. needs work, though. The roof like will sneaking, need to work. So. Yeah, the roof will always need to work in one spot. We'll, we'll make sure that yeah. um, it's like a thing. Um, but, uh, it, you know, another thing, too, is just the, strange, the strangeness thing, I think, is born out of all these specificities. And I might be too um, grand in my assessment of your work, but I am a, I've said this to you before, but I'm a total Alfred Hitchcock dork. Mm-hmm. And I love Alfred Hitchcock. My wife and I... I mean, if I have to live with something, it's going to be his films. And, you know, like he he would draw out everything out in, in a painting kind of way and then just shoot the shots. And that was mm-hmm. it. And he, or he would draw them out and then say, shoot it this way. Yeah. And then he would shoot it that way. There wouldn't be retakes. So his his forethought into Yeah, was profound. So then you so then you look at, well, the way that these are shot and the lighting and color and um, there's an oddity. Which is kind of, I think the oddness is kind of the artist's hand is so unique in this very accessible reality he's creating. And this tension between accessibility and specificity mm-hmm. is uniquely his, his fingerprint in a way. And he's translating from texts that other people have written and, and, you know, and then putting them into these uh, pen and ink structures mm-hmm. that are vivid, clear frame shots that have a lot to do with painting because he was really interested in the history of painting, which makes mm-hmm. sense to me. And then and he brings this world forward. And that's why I said, I, you know, I feel like there's like these unusual overlaps in mystery and intrigue and the way you're composing and structuring. And then you look, you peel the layers back and there's a similar process going on um, that is hyper particular to you, which gets at a kind of strange oddness, uh, a, a kind of quality that's just hard to put mm-hmm. your finger on. And um, you can't, you kind of can't, you can't let it go. You got to kind of keep scratching at it. And uh, I think that's like, um, one of the reasons people need to see your work in person. Well, I, I've always, I've always absolutely been intrigued by those films, particularly his movie Rebecca. Yeah. Too sort of that adaptation of the Demoria story. Yep. I absolutely love that that ghost story, and I'm always like that. Go, kind of goes back to my interest, in like being a kid, and my older brother and I, particular, in particular, we would we lived in a lot of old houses and we would tell ghost stories to each other and imagine what had happened in these spaces beforehand. We had a like big, beautiful old basement um, in Northern New York. And then my, you know, my family would say like, this was a stop on the underground railroad. Um, and so starting to imagine the space and who could have lived in here, who could have passed through there. And I think that's part of the reason why I was interested in, in these kind of dramas and Hitchcock films too. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of, proximity of the supernatural too like they could step into frame in yeah. an interesting way um so i always i always loved those types of stories and like you and i have talked about too magical realism right like telling something fantastical in something of a down-to-earth way i absolutely right. am fascinated by yeah um and that that relates back to like stories that your grandparents would tell you like you'd have somewhat a credible source kind of all of a sudden weave in a ghost into the story and like wait, wait a second yeah we're gonna keep right. going with yeah. it because it's, it's so interesting yeah and so like that's definitely informed the way that I, I tell stories right and with Hitchcock like Grace Kelly comes into the series into the Lake Elster series at a yeah. certain point because she knew Wade right taught her racquetball as a young when she was fairly young and living in Philadelphia he knew her. So right. she comes into the story a little bit as well. Yeah. But um, I don't know. There's lots of different influences. Yeah. So as Wade's mind um, fades, 
What happens to Lake Elster? What happens to it? He's his. I feel like he's getting a new drive and a new purpose with okay. this new character, Maeve. Yeah. So the, he's he's ninety three years old, but I think that he has some longevity in his bones. Gotcha. Yeah, he's found the fountain of youth. <laughs> drinking the he's drinking the lake water. <laughs> but I think things are getting a little like he still feels like he has a purpose. So yeah. it's gonna keep going for a little while. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. 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 I I mean, and I think we can probably bring it to a close here. I, I, you got any thoughts, Will? Anything anything pressing? Where you where, where so we got the uh, what can we look for? Where where should we where can we find your work? There's different ways we can find your work. So different ways, yeah. yeah. Um well, right now I'm currently, let's see. So I'm in talk starting to put together a show with uh, a really amazing artist named Norm Barney, who's okay. a Canadian artist yep. um, who I went and visited last summer. And we kind of, we've been talking uh, since we met a few years ago at a residency. So we're, we're kind of playing around with an, uh, a show of his paintings and sculptures and some of my, you know, painted props and photographs. And we're hoping to put it together in Montreal coming up Excellent. soon. Um, you can find in the meanwhile, you know, still working on pieces, but you, I always post on Instagram okay. and on my website. Yeah. Um, and now you're now at Shaco Art Space Studios. Shaco Art Space Studios yeah, as well. I just moved in here. So yeah. um, we're almost done. A couple so, of things yeah. in the works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we'll definitely have some pop-up situations yeah. where people can come see your work and talk with you more. Um, I honestly don't think we covered everything we may we you might be one of those people we bring back on to do, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, to do another do another talk um because i think there's still more we can kind of kind of get to so mm -hmm. um the good news is you're going to be around for a minute and i hope <laughs> you know i hope people do come out and see your work and uh i um i think um artists we need to take up sort of support for each other in helping to cultivate uh interest in, in real interest, you know, like an honest interest, like, yeah. um, in patronage and support. Mm -hmm. And, um, we got to really look at the world we're in right now and why that is or is not the case. So, so my hope is, is we keep, uh, pushing things forward and opening up more avenues. People, uh, get greater access into your work. So even if you gain uh, an increased audience, I still think your ultimate audience is in the future somewhere. I really do. <laughs> I really do. I think, I think, I just think you've made that kind of world for yourself. And I, and I love, you know, I think in closing, I think I love that you're an, in a way you're kind of like an author, uh, but not in a classical sense, but I kind of put you into the, the classical canon too. Like you're in and out, you know what I mean? Like I, I think oh, about goodness. the way you, yeah, I think about the way you work in that way. And I, I'm saying that because I think that's something that people will talk about in the future. Thank you. So I just want to, attach yeah. myself to the value of your work coming full circle i'm with gareth because I, he's a phd i'm with you because i think your work's uh, going to be super important so i just want to be able well, to say i was there you've given me a whole lot of opportunities thank you yeah, no, yeah, space. yeah yeah thank you Likewise. for being an advocate yeah so thanks for thanks for for coming on yeah definitely thank you so much yeah all right we'll see you next time uh tune in we have um gosh there's like some other exciting uh artists coming so we'll say more do check out the GoFundMe video if you haven't already, please consider supporting us. We just, we want to see this go forward and, and, 
at this point, it's a community project. It's going to require the community. And we know we're thankful for all the people that are already supporting. And so yeah, definitely. Yeah. Hugely grateful for all the people that have helped us build to this point. Yeah. Really excited about how that plays out yeah. in the next few months and years. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottom.